Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello, and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, and my Guest today is a best-selling author and recognized by globalgurus.org as the number five leadership expert in the world today. He writes an award-winning blog and is author of The Fred Factor, which has sold more than two million copies to date and has established him as an expert on turning the ordinary into the extraordinary. He's featured by Crestcom in DVD-based training taught in 90 countries, and is also leadership expert in residence at High Point University, the premier life skills university. His list of over 2,500 clients includes the likes of Harley-Davidson, Costco, Cisco, In-N-Out Burger, and now The Only One Business Show. Please welcome from Denver, Colorado, Mark Sanborn. Mark, hi, how are you? I'm great, James. Thanks for having me on the show. It's good to be with you. Oh, it's it's lovely that you could take the time for me, Mark. Thanks so much, and listeners really appreciate it, especially when you have to get up so early on the other side of the uh, of the lake to uh, to catch up with us. But it's um it's lovely just chatting with you beforehand. There, you're you're a reformed motorcyclist, a reformed flyer. Um, you're a man of many talents. Yeah, now I mostly try to just go fast in my pace of daily living rather than. Uh, <laughs> driven by things with engine. That's probably a really, really sensible way to do things. And talk to us about the Fred Factor, Mark, because it's sold over 2 million copies, and I appreciate you've brought out Fred 2.0 now. But for those who haven't read the book, what, what's Fred all about? You know, Fred, uh, he's still alive today. He's just retired. When I met him many years ago, he was a postal carrier for the United States Postal Service. Uh-huh. and. I'm not sure uh, how your postal service is evaluated there in the UK, but frankly, in the US, when you think about customer service, the United States Postal Service usually doesn't come to mind. Right. And Fred did such an extraordinary job of delivering my mail, as simple as that may sound, that I wrote a book about him. I used him as the real life living example metaphor for what great service looks like. By the way, if anyone would like to read the first chapter for free, they can go to fredfactor.com. And the actual story, the details, if you will, are when I first encountered Fred uh, can be found there. But basically, the reason I think it became a successful book wasn't because of my Hemingway-like prose. Um, (laughs) Matter of fact, you might appreciate this, James. I had a review on Amazon and it said, this book is so simple, it's written at a seventh grade level. And I thought... I wonder what level it is written at. So I took a block of text and I went online and I found an analysis tool. And you know what? It's not written at a seventh grade level. It's written at a fifth grade level. (laughs) You know, someone was talking to me about newspapers recently, Mark, and and they're all written at seventh and fifth, aren't they? So so it's right on the money. Well, and, and the thing is, is that Fred, you know, 
he has a simple job. Uh, until he retired, he sorted and put mail in the box. So most people would say, you know, that doesn't lend itself to being really extraordinary or creative or masterful. But if Fred can bring <clears throat> that kind of artistry to his simple work, then you and I have far more to work with on the palette that we call work uh, mm-hmm. than Fred did. What was it about him? What was it? Was it Fred himself, or, or what Fred had learned, or what made Fred so special? Well, first it was was Fred, and uh, you know I, I learned an important lesson, and it's one of the principles of the book. Everybody makes a difference. The only question is what kind. Uh-huh. I, I think neutrality is a myth. When you encounter a postal carrier or someone at the grocery, or a, a lawyer or a teacher. Uh, they, they impact you either by being interested and engaged and willing to help or by being indifferent and disengaged. And we, we always interpret that neutrality, if you will, as indifference. It may not be fair, mm-hmm. but, you know, you don't turn to your spouse when you get bad service and say, well, honey, they were just neutral. You know, no, you say they, they didn't care. Yep. They didn't like it. They weren't interested in us. And so the first thing I learned is that no matter what job you have, nobody can prevent you from choosing to be extraordinary. Mm-hmm. That me is one of the big messages because Fred worked in a system that didn't encourage or reward or teach excellence. And yet he made that choice himself. Uh, The second thing I learned from Fred is Fred was the first postal carrier I ever got to know. I mean, most of us see our postal carrier, maybe know his or her name, wave. But Fred really took time to understand if, you know, what I did for a living, did I travel? And because I did travel, that would impact how you would deliver my mail and keep an eye on my home so that I wasn't, you know, the victim of a burglary. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I, I got to know Fred and, uh, you know, we're coming up on a, content- well, we, we've been in a contentious political system now for about four mm-hmm. years, but we're coming up on an election. And I'm always reminded of something they say in politics, and it's so true in, in customer service, and that is it's hard to hate in person. You know, that person mm-hmm. who you get an email from or a letter from, or even sometimes that you talk to on the phone, if you were to meet that person face to face and just spend a few minutes, you probably find out they're not such a bad person. You know, they're just like you. They got their their flaws and their their strengths. But it's important that as much as possible, if we can't build a relationship with our customers, we at least connect with them. And I say a connection is a moment of shared affinity where we recognize something in them that, that is like us and that we can appreciate. So the second part of that is relationship. I love what you said there about the uh, about text and uh, armchair warriors because you see so much of that these days of people getting very kind of hot under the collar about different things um, and knocking it out on a, on a keyboard. And one of the big sadnesses for me, I guess, when I work with a lot of my clients, and I'm sure you see this too, is the, the, the reliance on email and, and messaging systems um, rather than the phone and, and face-to-face and, and the, the, the reduction in quality of relationship that you, uh, that you end up with as a result of that. Let me just interject, James, because I think, you know, certainly generational differences come into play. But one of the things I've learned is that even with email, it's possible to be a little warmer and a little less sterile. You know, I'm a I'm a left brain economist by training. So, you know, I'm a get to the point, get the job done. I would often send emails that would say, you know, hey, can you send me that uh, address? (laughs) And I found that just by putting, you know, hey, Bob, how's it going? Can you send me that address? As superficial as that seems, it's it's almost a symbol for saying, hey, you're still human. I'm still human. So uh, I agree it's harder. Uh, and, and I think younger people have figured out a way to put a little more personality into texting and email and perhaps 
those of us that are older, but it is still possible to be relational in these different communication modes. So that's just, that's just t- choosing to be different, choosing to be extraordinary. You know, it's, it's about paying attention. I think so much of, of anything today is about being engaged and in the moment, not daydreaming, looking at your phone. By the way, I was in a hotel last week for three days and right outside my window and down one floor, there was an office building. And there was a young guy, I don't know how old he was, maybe early 20s. He had a computer on his desk, but every time I checked, it got to be a game. He was right. looking at his phone. And I, I almost wanted to walk over and walk upstairs and say, what what is it you're supposed to do for a living? Now, maybe he monitors maybe he monitors the phone for the firm. I, I shouldn't be judgmental, but I just remember going, dude, how do you get anything done with your your continual fascination with your phone. Oh, I wish you had. It's uh, you, you see this in restaurants these days. See waiters wandering around and waitresses wandering around with the phone in the back pocket. And you know, um, when I worked for Hilton Group a long, long time ago, it, it was before mobile phones, Mark. So, but I'm pretty sure we weren't allowed to make personal calls or, or what have you while we were working. And a lot of that was to do with focusing on your job. Um, but with that sort of technology available, it, it does make me wonder how people do actually continually focus on what they should be thinking about and focusing on, rather than what they what they choose to to uh, to be distracted by. Well, I agree. You, you mentioned uh, you mentioned choosing to be extraordinary. It, it, what makes somebody not choose to be extraordinary, and what makes somebody choose to be extraordinary? Well, that's a good question. You know. It boils down to one of two things or a combination thereof, and that is genetics or Mm -hmm. environment. Um, You know, one one of the things that I think that's important, I I don't know, you know, people ask me, can you make somebody be a Fred? Well, you know, I I, I have grown sons now, but when they were kids, I couldn't make them take out the garbage. So I'm the wrong guy (laughs) to ask about making anybody do anything. You know, I think what you can do is encourage and role model and recognize and reward. You can do all those positive things, but at the end of the day, if somebody chooses not to be a Fred, I'm not suggesting they're not a nice human being, but they're probably not somebody you're going to really want on your sales or on your service team. Uh, and, and I think that's why when we hire, in my new book, I say hire for, for culture, not just for function. And that is, if you want a culture that really gives extraordinary service, don't just hire somebody that's able to pick up the phone and recite the script. Hire somebody that seems genuinely jazzed about the challenge of engaging people and solving problems and helping. Because, you know, function only takes you part way there. You've got to hire for cultural fit as well. It's uh, it's an interesting thing you mentioned that I talk about it a lot. And if you've uh, well, if, if you've seen any of my previous pods or or any of the the blogs that I write, I, I'm forever talking about um, understanding core values of business and then hiring against core value. And that's understanding the way you want the business to be or what the business is, and then hiring people who fit with the business as well as people who can do the job. And I want to talk about the. Um, intention imperative because it's um you know it's it's brand new and fantastic before we get to it what's the role of the leader then if you've got people in your business who you've hired correctly you think you've got the right people and the right jobs um and they're not quite choosing that exceptional style yet what's the leader's role in helping them it's a good question let me give your listeners an acronym i know acronyms are a little hat need and trite but they're still a pretty good way to remember stuff. Sure. Uh, I, I would say leaders need to remember the acronym FRED. F is for find because it's easier to find someone than to convert someone. 
if you can hire someone with that predisposition, your your work is much easier. Mm -hmm. The second one is once you have someone on your team, you've got to reward and recognize them for the right behavior. Uh, Often good work goes unrecognized. I mean, think about it, James. The people that do good work usually always do good work. And so we kind of take them for granted, don't we? You know, it's like, well, you know. At James, man, he does a great job. Now, Bob's a knucklehead, so I got to spend all my time yeah. on remedial work with Bob. And over time, you know, James is like, damn, does, doesn't anyone notice? Mm. So rewarding and reward, I always say, is tangible. Recognition is intangible. That just reinforces the right behaviors. Yeah. The E in Fred is for educate, because here's the deal. Uh, expectation without education equals frustration. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't give people innocuous squishy bromides like delight the customer. What the hell does that mean? People need to understand how concepts translate into behavior. So you got to teach people at our firm, how do we delight the customer? What are some of the things we're willing to do? Share good ideas that other people on the, on the team use. So that's the, that's the E for educate. But the D is the most important one. It sounds simple. And that is demonstrate because people will listen to what you say as a leader, but they'll watch how you treat people. Yeah. And if you tell your team to treat people well and you treat people like crap, sorry, that's a big disconnect. Well, we were talking before we went on air about uh, about a little bit about parenthood and uh, and do as I say, not as I do. But um, you know, there's far too many businesses where where that is the case. You know, I want you to work this way, and then uh, don't worry about the way I do it. I'm you know I'm past it, or I can't do it anymore, or I've lost interest. And that that just that just rubs off on everyone around them, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, in parenthood, we don't get a grade until it's too late, right? Because after the kids are out of the house, then we find out if we, we got it right or we, we got it wrong. Well, I, I, I was told very early on when our kids were, well, when my boy was very little, said, your job as a parent is just not to stuff him up too much. And I thought that was a really awkward way of looking at it. You always want to teach them to be themselves, but to be their best selves. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. So- You've just brought out the new book. Um, fantastic read. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about where you've got to now. Yeah, well, the, the big shift in the new book, and, and by the way, let me just mention that the other two principles of the Fred Factor, besides everybody makes a difference and, uh, you know, it's all built on relationship, is you can add value to what you do. It doesn't have to cost a nickel. Mm-hmm. And that's about getting creative and replacing money with imagination and finding ways to delight the customer. And then uh, the final principle is you've got to reinvent yourself every day. Uh, You know, don't wait for someone else to motivate you. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But ultimately, you're responsible for your own level of motivation. Mm -hmm. The new book talks about the fact that all success comes down to being clear on what you're trying to accomplish and taking consistent and correct action every day. That's what the intention imperative is. No long-term success is sustained by accident. You might have a one-hit wonder, a one-trick pony, but successful leaders, successful people don't end up on top of Mount Everest accidentally. It's Mm -hmm. very intentional. It takes a lot of planning and a lot of effort. But the balance of the book, I talk about three big shifts that I believe all businesses globally need to take. And I'll just focus on the one that's most relevant to, to customer service. And that is the shift from customer experience to customer emotion not just the experience you create, but how the customer feels about it. Okay. Uh, for instance, you can, you can have a good experience, but if you didn't get what you want or expected, you're still unhappy and disappointed. So what I talk about in the book 
is to design and deliver for emotion, to actually identify, and I talk about 16 emotions in the book, actually identify what is it you want your customer to think, feel, and do when they when they leave or they interact with you, and then to design that in to the way you deliver your service. Right. So give us an example of where you've seen that really working well. Well, a friend of mine, you know, she she had to borrow a car from a car dealership. And when uh, she had a flat tire and she was going to be late for an appointment, so when they bring her a car that she can drive to the appointment, uh, the guy brings her a hot cup of coffee, uh, a, a charger for her phone, and uh, you know sends her on her way. So she not only is able to make her appointment on time, but she gets a cup of coffee and her phone, which was almost dead, you know, she was able to charge. Mm-hmm. Now the hard cost on that, the, the phone charger, you know, was a was was a loaner, obviously, and the coffee was, you know, either two dollars at Dunkin' Donuts or nine dollars at Starbucks. <laughs> but the point of the matter is. You know, it was thoughtfulness. I always say the number one tool that any service provider or leader has to be successful is to slow down enough to think about and notice opportunities to be thoughtful. Right. You know, right. you're going 100 miles an hour with your hair on fire. You don't, you're not unthoughtful. You just don't have time to be thoughtful. It's uh, when you mentioned that, I was just uh, just thinking I was in a, a my, my lad loves skateboarding and he had a skateboarding party last week and and you know I left them in the skate park for a while and went off to find some lunch and I ended up in a chicken joint and as I walked in the door the first thing the guy said to me was you know thanks for coming um, if you've got a laptop in your bag would you like me to charge it for you now he'd obviously taken he'd seen I was carrying what looked like a laptop bag and he decided to to ask me something which actually I thought you know what that's fantastic but it was an opportunity he took I'm sure he's been trained to do that how do we look at our staff though how do we train them to to notice the opportunities well you know the threat factor I call it ABCD above and beyond the call of duty Mm -hmm. little things make a big difference I think one of the big mistakes we make is we think, you know, we got to do something grandiose like give our customer a, a new car uh, to really, you know, wow them. But that obviously would wow them. But there's, yeah, yeah. like you said, what, what example you gave is fabulous because here's a guy, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, they serve chicken. And yet what makes your experience better and how do you feel when you pleasantly surprise somebody? In any environment, they leave happier and happier people buy more, tell others. I mean, you just told me all your podcast listeners and they're more loyal. And that's really what the name of the game is. So you've got to a bring this this opportunity into awareness for your team. And then the best way to teach it is to, to use examples, mm-hmm. you know, to teach. This is what I did. Here's what I experienced. This is what worked. What have you seen? Because that's much more memorable than just the concept. Oh, absolutely, and I could tell you what I couldn't tell you what I ate, but I remember that, um, which is yeah. which is you know I, I'm, you know you're probably a bit like me, Mark. I'm forever looking for examples of great service, and I'm also very critical of bad service. I think we all are, and there's there's a big you know the ability to to rant. We mentioned online, you know, armchair warriors, but you know th- things like uh, trip, you know, TripAdvisor and, and and what have you, um, they do give us the opportunity to be to be grumpy. Um, but they also give us the opportunity to to thank people and to and to give them a little a little nudge and a little you know a, a bit of uh, recognition, I guess, for for what they've done. When you talked before about reward and recognition, where does praise fit in that cycle? 
Well, I would say praise is a form of recognition. I mean, praise doesn't cost anything. And by the way, you, you know, as long as it's sincere, you really can't overdo it. I've never met somebody that said, you know what I hate about my boss? He just appreciates, appreciates me way too much. <laughs> He's forever praising me, slapping me on the back. You know, it makes me crazy. If it's sincere, you can't overdo it. I think where managers get mucked up is they, 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 you know, they go to a seminar and they hear, I need to be, uh, I need to give my employees praise and it's hollow. Mm -hmm. It's insincere. It's like, uh, good job, Bob. Uh, and, and the more specific and enthusiastic it is, the more lasting it'll be. But that's praise is certainly part of the recognition cycle in my book. Uh, cool, absolutely. And when when you when you see the the eyes light up when people you know in a team meeting or for whatever it is, that sort of recognition amongst peers is is super important. I, I saw that recently in a in a hotel I was at where um, someone was looked after. I did I don't know what happened at the table next to me, but something had happened. Um, and the maitre d' grabbed the waiter and just sort of took him aside and shook his hand and told him, well done. And, you know, in front of the, the whole place, I thought that was that was really fantastic. You, yes. you talked a little bit, um, well, you mentioned earlier about about keeping fresh and, and keeping yourself, um, you know, fresh in your role. Uh, businesses are often seen as, you know, there's, there's a business at the UK today going into administration, a big place where, you know, sell, mother care, I don't know if it's in the States as well, but it sells baby gear and, and what have you. Um, and it's yet another casualty of, of the high street. And people kind of like to quickly blame you know the online retailers like Amazon and what have you for the, for that. But why why are these big businesses not managing to change with the times? What is it stopping them keeping fresh? Well, you know, I write a little bit about that. I call it Seth Godin called it years ago the stuck winning model, and that's for some reason stuck in my head. And that is, you know, we do what works, and because it works, we keep doing it. And then when it stops working, we do more of it. You know, we're, we're creatures of habit, and if if something I did used to work, then I, and I'm, not, I'm not getting the same results. I just say, wow, how can I do that better? How can I do more of it when maybe we shouldn't be doing it or doing something different? In the book, I talk about the world that is. I'm a pragmatist and you got to look around and, you know, you may not like social media, but frankly, if you're in any kind of a customer service business, you better damn well better monitor it for because you know, that's as a matter of fact, I've given up on making phone calls. If I want some help. I go to yep. Twitter because most organizations that are worth their soul have a team that can at least direct you or help you, you know, get some resolution to the problem that you're facing. But even if you don't like customer service, and frankly, I'm not a fan of it, but I have a platform that includes all the social media bases because it's how I go to market. It's part of my, my marketing yep. mix. And if I had said, you know what, that social media is great. By the way, we always take an example of somebody who isn't doing something, and then we make it our example. I do know a friend who's very, very successful as a speaker, and his social media is pretty mediocre. But he's an outlier. He's an anomaly. He's not the rule. And if you had the other things going for you that he has going for him, you wouldn't need to do much more, you know, as a speaker. I or, or anyone else wouldn't need to do much social media mm -hmm. either. So it's very dangerous to take that exception and say, well, you know, Bob, uh, he, he didn't adopt that new technology and he's doing just fine. Well, there, there might be a, a reason for that or maybe Bob just plain got lucky. Well, I, I think it's it's probably a mixture of both. But uh, if you uh, if you want to ignore the bigger shop window that we've got, I think you're crazy, aren't you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and here's the question. Do you want to thrive or you just want to survive? And there, there are, frankly, you know, we used to say, you know, you got to change or you'll be extinct. Eh, I've come to believe that isn't necessarily true. I see a lot of mediocre businesses that are hanging on, but they don't look like they're having much fun. And I know they're not mm-hmm. making much money. So, you know, I go back to, you know, if you want to just survive then knock yourself out, find that balance between getting, just getting by and, you know, putting in eight hours. And, and if that makes you mm-hmm. happy, God bless you. But most of us, you know, we aspire to something a little higher. And if we really want to excel, then we need to be contemporary with what works best in our respective marketplaces. If, if people sitting listening now, Mark, and they're, they're hearing what you're saying and they're thinking, well, you know, what can I do? How can somebody listening now make their, their work, their life extraordinary? What could they change or what, how do they go about starting? Well, I would, I would just two, very, two or three very simple ideas. Number one, next time you ask somebody, hey, how are you doing? Actually mean it. In other words, I know how are you, how you doing, you know, those are common greetings. But every once in a while, inquire into the lives of the people you, mm-hmm. you live and work with. Take an interest because, you know, you don't have to do that with every interaction every day. You, you don't have enough time. The problem isn't that we don't do it every time. And so we go weeks or months without doing it at all. Really inquiring into, you know, being interested in the lives of a coworker or a customer. Uh, the second thing would be that ABCD. Ask yourself, what little extra flourish can I do? Won't take much time, won't cost me any money, but you know, maybe I can charge their computer for them while they eat their chicken, uh, like your your example was. But that's what ABCD is. Now, my favorite technique is uh, what what I call the one a day principle, and that is do a good job for everybody, but once a day find one person to do something super cool for, something that'll make them go, holy buckets. I can't believe they just did that, you know, so that at dinner that night with their family or when they go back to work after lunch, they'll go, you won't believe what just happened. And, you know, again, the idea is you can't delight everybody, but why not find one, one person a day, make it a challenge. You got eight, eight, 10 hours in a shift, find one person and do something super cool for. And I call that the one a day principle. And it's very easy to, to consistently do something uh, amazing for people when you narrow it down like that. That's a fantastic idea. I really love that. What have you done in your business? What if, when you look at your own business, Mark, what have you done to to take yourself up another level? What have you done to change to a, an extraordinary position? How do you serve your clients better? I have tried to live by the rule to be an early adopter of technology, uh, technology that benefits my customers. That also means... Um, Sometimes spending a little more money, early technology tends to be more expensive before it's mm-hmm. per- pervasive. But I'll give you an example. Year, this is a long time ago when you think about it. Um, speakers would say, uh, have you heard about this new website thing, this URL? Do you have a URL? Well, yeah, I got a URL. Do you have a, do you have a website? Well, you know, our, people say to me, you, you're one of the first guys with a website. Is it getting you bookings? And I go, not yet. But here's the deal. The reason I'm doing it now is so I can learn the technology before Mm -hmm. it's commonplace. In other words, if you wait until everybody else has adopted something, all you're doing is keeping up. It's when you can get on the front edge of, you name the technology, whether it's, you know, uh, CRM or whether it's social media or whether it's Slack, when you can learn that technology and master it before everyone else, that's where I think the competitive advantage lies. And who do you look to to understand where that is? How do you keep an eye on everything that's new? 
Well, you know, that that fear of missing out isn't one of my <laughs> dilemmas in my older age. But, uh, you know, I, I have I have really smart friends, colleagues. And then, you know, I'm, I belong to a prof- I'm a big believer in professional associations as a, a way to really cut years off your learning curve. Um, so, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I pay attention. I just I'm interested in everything except ballet. I'm not a big ballet fan, but I'm pretty much interested in everything in, that I encounter. So I can always learn uh, from new new insights from new areas. When you look at all the clients that you've worked with, and you've worked with some fairly you know really meaty names, which are the ones that really stand out now to you? Having thought about them, you know, which are the ones that are are really striving forward that we can look to? Well, there, you know, there are a lot of, uh, I mean, certainly I have some, some blue chip clients. I just worked for, uh, uh, do you have, yeah. Oh yeah. You have, uh, do you have Lidl there? L I D L. Yep. Little. Yep. We, we little, call it little, but who knows how it's really pronounced. Yeah, I was gonna say, and and you know, when I say they're my client, you go, well, how come you don't know how to pronounce them? Cause it's been a while since I worked with them, but they, to me are a really good example of how you can take something that is relatively stodgy grocery and related items and make it really sexy and fun. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a chance to visit one of their stores. They're relatively new to the United States. Uh, and I just think that they, they've said, you know, uh, there's still ways to reinvent this business. There's still twists and nuances and angles that we can use to create value. I just I just toured St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and that was incredibly mm-hmm. inspiring just to see an organization that is so unified by the idea of, of helping kids for free that everybody seems to be on the same energy wavelength, whether they work in the cafeteria or they're doing research or they're treating patients. And I just remember thinking, wow, if, if everyone really visited here, they'd understand what it's like to have a unity of commitment to a mission and a vision. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Absolutely fabulous. Mark, it's so so much in what you've said today is going to ring with the people listening, and I, I know our listeners will be really keen to to hear much more from you. But before we go, I just want to ask you the one question, the one big thing. What's the thing that people can do in their businesses today um, to make a difference for them for today and for the years to come? What would that golden nugget be? I would say revisit what you're doing and why you're doing it. I'll go back to what I say in the intention imperative. You know, a lack of clarity, you can't overcome a lack of clarity with hard work. You also can't have a successful outcome if you're clear, but you're not doing the right things. And I think we are such creatures of habit, as I alluded to earlier, that we sometimes go on autopilot. I think the more we pause and think about our businesses and why we're doing it, what changes are needed, or what we need to start or stop doing, we become more intentional. And I think, uh, as I said, the one thing that, that unites all successful people and leaders is they're crystal clear on what they're trying to accomplish, and they take consistent and correct action every day to accomplish it. Fabulous. Mark, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been lovely chatting with you. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, James. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of The Only One Business Show, and I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.